growth requires more than capital. Why do we call it the cheat code? Nobody said growth had to be fair. Revenue solves everything. Welcome to the cheat code. What was our fastest path to revenue? We tend to like to do things the hard way. What's the cheat code? It's giving yourself an unfair advantage over the others. What is it that really works and how are we going to grow these organizations? That's our cheat code. Uh, Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Cheat Code Podcast. Today, I've got a very special person with me, not only a previous co-worker, but a friend, Mr. Derek Grant. Derek, how are you doing today? Good, good. Thanks for having me. Super excited to have the opportunity to chat with this great uh, ecosystem startup founder. And so Derek is uh, just recently went over to run sales over at AdPipe and previously uh, worked for, I think, maybe eight years over at SalesLoft, running uh, market strategy, commercial sales, account management, SDRs, really did it all. Um, and uh, previously before that, uh, was able to grow the Pardot um, sales organization, which was then acquired by Exact Target and eventually. Uh, an amazing track record, and I had the pleasure of being with you for many. That's right. I rem- I joined SalesLoft. You all had literally, you had taken the world over with prospector unstructured data, being able to get uh, names right out of LinkedIn, and then LinkedIn didn't get very happy about that. And then it was your idea of a sales workflow engine that really became and, and is now the core of SalesLoft front filtering and sales engagement. And so those were, were incredible days. I still remember our million-dollar party, so I joined. Right after we'd made a million in cadence revenue, they'd say the first million's hard to make. Flight so took right after. Uh, but that was the uh, that was the first and last party they let me plan. <laughs> you know what? It was a good one though. It'll, it'll yeah. go down in the Hall of Fame. It was Brian Brian Culler and I, our uh, our director of engineering and myself, engineering. were tasked with creating a party, um, and it was a fun one. Oh, so right. Um, so Derek, I know, um, I've seen you do a lot of amazing things to grow organizations. I know that you are such an authentic leader. Um, I've always said this about you, but anyone, 99% of the people that have worked for you before would likely take a bullet for you. And I, and I think you would do the same for them. And so, um, it was, uh, it was always inspiring to see. And I know that one of the ways that you were able to accomplish, um, that level of trust is through setting the right expectations from the ground up, not only from the rep side, but also at the executive level. Um, and then validating that and tracking it um, through data. I'd, lo- I'd love to hear um, you know, some of the methodologies and strategies there, why it's important. I will tell you that uh, that we're a big believer in, uh, in God we trust, all others bring data. I was thinking back to my early Fortnite days, a, a great manager for us at the time who was now a CEO at a company. I remember he used to walk into the office and say, I think, and I'd be like, ah, 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 turn it back around. I don't want to hear what you think. Come back with what you can prove. What do you know to be true? Uh, and so that's always been an important part for us. But, you know, as I think about the importance of, of expectation settings, uh, particularly in startups, you know, deals are lumpy and deals are, are not things that happen each and every day in a lot of startups, particularly for selling to enterprise and not running ELG type of motion. And so, yeah, we all want the lagging indicator of revenue. There's a lot of things that happen before that. And so, just optimizing for the outcome and not the work and the ingredients that are required to get up to that outcome, I feel like is a bit of a miss. I, I've said for years that one of the, the number one thing that a sales manager can do to get a rep fired, pay attention. Because when they do tune in, suddenly their boss is happening them like, hey, so-and-so has done a lot. They haven't booked anything. Then it's all hands on deck. There's this sort of frenetic hand waving. And generally it's too late. And had you intervened earlier, 
you might have been able to have figured out what it was that was important. And so, uh, so I've been a big believer in leading indicators. And for us, leading indicators are really only six. You know, when everything's important, nothing is important. And those six things are number of emails, which I don't put a lot of, of uh, credence in that metric. I track it just because it is one of the communication channels. But with platforms like Salesloft or Outreach, uh, it's you're sending out a ton of email from a from a rep is not particularly special, uh, but I track that. I track calls, conversations, opportunities booked, or I'm too excuse me created booked and revenue closed. And when you think about that sort of waterfall and you track it weekly, it helps you identify trends. It helps you identify individual gaps in reps, and and it allows your executives to see that there's a lot that goes on prior to that magical moment where eating kids paper and the contract gets signed. That's right. Yeah, so you think it's interesting. You talked a little bit about you know data and setting expectations through what you know to be true versus what you think or feel. And right. as you likely know with your seller track record, sellers run the gamut in terms of their personality, right? You get the you know the more engineering process driven types, and you got the cowboys on the other end. That's right. Do you find that that's your your secret sauce? Because you know Belichick didn't coach Brady the same way he coached number 53 on the roster. So how do you use that to modify and adjust your coaching? So one of the big things I think about is, is I don't ever want to be somebody who runs a call center. And so when I I measure calls and I measure emails, it's really a means to an end. And what I mean by that is really the thing that I look at weekly is how many apps did you create? And I have an expectation. I have a stated expectation that I expect two apps per week. That is, I am a knuckle dragger in that way. I've been pro Madden man in sales management for a very long time. And look, it's possible for an, for an established AE to get two meetings a week. I just don't, I, I don't find any sort of, of gap in that logic. Um, and so I, I, if, if they miss that, then we start looking up. And if you didn't do the work and you didn't get to the number, now we have a problem. But really at the end of the day, I like to just treat everybody, look, we all need pipeline. We're all on a journey to create pipeline. We can't win deals if we're not in. And so as long as the pipeline number is it is what I'm looking for, I generally don't care kind of how you got there. I mean, clearly we don't want bats and blasts, like, you know, ruin our domain and reputation sort of emailing. For the most part, if a rep is stronger on the phone, stronger on email, a better social seller, I don't want to micromanage. I just want the outcome, right? Those activities are means to an end to the outcome that I'm looking uh, for. And so, but I, but I do, I do treat everyone the same. And I'll tell you, uh, Josh, really interesting story. So I'm five weeks here. And we had a, we have a, a really stellar longtime rep. And I'll tell you one of the things that scared me, and I, I probably a lot of people don't talk about their fears on this podcast, but if we can, if I can uh, put my feet up on the sofa and you can ask me to, to tell you all about my fears. One thing was that he wouldn't come along, right? Because it is really hard when your number one rep, and he, what do you, you got fire right? If that person has the ability to fight town hall. What I would say is that I'm super proud of him and, and, and our other reps who existed pre me coming in, they have. They have come alongside and they're not, they've, they've been part of the solution. And when they do that, then it makes it a lot easier to hold everyone's the same. Brings up a good um, segue. How do you introduce these expectations? What's the, the tactics and the methodologies that you're using in order to, um, to kind of communicate these to the team and then make sure uh, that they have a reporting structure uh, that can validate it as well? Yeah, so uh, so great question. So I, I love natural experiments. Uh, National experiment for the best. And I'll, I'll give any of those who, who have not ever done this experiment, I, I recommend you do it. If we're in the, we're in the, the getting into the fall. I know we're still sort of the dog days of summer, but 
the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, I'm going to give you a really easy natural experiment, which is this. Say, hey, look, you're, you're going to make 50 calls. As soon as you hit your 50 calls today, you can go. You can go. And they're out of there by 11 a.m. It's a thing. Thank you. A little bit of focus, man, there. Now, second week of December, they can't get to it in a whole day. And you're like, wait, wait, wait. But when you were getting to go home early, you got there in, in, by lunch. So I don't believe that you can't do this. Well, we had a natural experiment here. I walked in on week one, and I didn't say And I didn't, I didn't set any expectations, just like really happy to be here. And I just walked. And as I was watching, what I saw was that a, a team of, of three ramp sellers made a total of 83 total calls between SDR and AE. And I just, I didn't say anything. I didn't make a big deal about it. And on Monday, I said, so I wasn't, I didn't set my expectations. This was a, was a natural experiment. And here's what I can tell you, that ain't it. So here are my expectations. And I laid out the expectations. And what I took was historical connect rate, historical close rate, historical ASP. And I said, this is what a day needs to look like in order for you to be successful here. And so we set expectations, not arbitrarily. As a matter of fact, I think my expectations on the call side are a little low, but the numbers work. The math rolls up as you're bottoming up into it. Like they should be able to get there on, on a, you know, a lower number of calls. And so I, I'm pretty excited about that, but I, we burst, we watched what was happening. Then, then I set my expectations in week two. And then what I said is, Every week, we will start our sales meeting off with metrics, both team and individual. And everyone knows the rule. And so know that you're going you're gonna to have your number up in front of your peers. So if you want to be the person who's having to answer some really uncomfortable questions in front of your peers, you know, by all means, fight town hall, you know, do whatever you want. But know that we're going to talk about it and know that we will identify people who didn't get there and know that we're going to have a remediation and we're going to try and understand and everyone gets a mulligan right, but don't part it this early, but it's only week two. I hope you're here for a long time. Uh, and so we just made metrics an important piece. We also do a Tuesday, Thursday stand-up. So Monday, we talk about the trailing lead metrics. Tuesday, we talk about metrics. Thursday, we talk about metrics. And so we're focused on, and really what we talk about in Tuesday and Thursday is op creation. But you can see if you haven't hung one on the board yet, then it's going to be your metrics that are getting looked at. And so I, I've seen people kind of come along and do it willingly. So it's, it's actually been, uh, been pretty nice, particularly with the old folks. Come on, but yeah, it just... Metrics everywhere, same metrics, not a hundred metrics, six metrics, and those six metrics get addressed all the time. And so that's the way that we sort of institutionalize those into the business. Yeah, I think those are really important, Derek. And you know, setting those benchmarks and those expectations around some some hard, tangible things are really important. If you think about through the lens of the founders that Sean and I are working with a lot, this is really early stage, right? And sometimes these are the first sales hires they're making. Yep. And they don't have any experience other than themselves going out and evangelizing their product that they created. Right. Yep. So what would you tell them? Like, how do they take a deep breath, take a step back and start to lay the groundwork for what even the expectations of the sales process should be, how you define an opportunity, what metrics we should be looking at. I know you talked about a little bit of that, but like put yourselves in the shoes of that early stage founder who like needs to wrap their head around. How do I set expectations? Now I've hired a salesperson. So I've had the opportunity to work with two organizations that have been pretty heavily founder-led sales when I got there. The yeah. first, I did a really poor job at and was not long for that position. And that's one of those deals where it wasn't right or wrong, wasn't good or bad. They're not terrible. I'm not all. It was just a fit at that point. And so I've been eight months. So they had a great tech company. It was really impressive tech. Uh, but could never, you know, the founder was able to tell stories I couldn't tell. And they were able to make mips I couldn't make. 
And so here at AdPipe, one of the things that we're doing is we are trying to gracefully put our founder, CEO, who is an exceptional sales rep, uh, push him out of the limelight and into more of a supporting role. So what, what we're thinking about, I'll give you a good example. I've done two demo certs this week. So we're certifying reps on demos. We're doing Dexter. And so what we'd like is that, that the executive can be there for executive alignment. They can be there for a uniquely technical question. They can be there for a product commitment, but they shouldn't be ancillary. And we're just pushing Andrew further and further back. And we're taking the responsibilities and moving them from his plate to the reps, but we're doing it. It's taken a lot. It's taken, you know, four weeks as we continue to prove we know what we're doing, what we're talking about. And we don't want him out by any stretch. We want right. him in. Exceptional. But we don't want him to be implicated for 90% of the meeting. We want, our, we want our sellers to be the people who are implicated. So uh, so that's been one of the real, really interesting things. I think that when you're coming from a founder-led sales perspective, you have to sort of understand that you have got an unfair advantage as the founder. And the story is your story. You found the, the this unique use case that your technology now solved. Uh, and, and so just know that, that no seller is going to be able to do it as good as you can. What we do want to do is we want to capture all those stories. Those stories are really magical uh, to be able to have. And, and for the sellers to be able, great sellers initially are great parents. They repeat things really well. If we can institutionalize those stories, that's a really good thing. And then it's make sure the founder is still involved. But the founder's role and what I hope is sort of as we're getting into Q4, that he'll be able to pick the meetings he goes to as opposed to feeling this uh, this need to be on a lot of the of, of the strategic meetings, so that's really what we're we're aiming toward. But it's going to take time and trust being built on both. I'm loving that certification concept. I feel like that's a forcing function for the founder right. to take a step back and say, "Hey, all right, really boil it down. Like, what what are you doing that's working, and and formalize, and then make them have a checklist of this is what certification that that I hadn't thought of that. I think. Can I tell you that I we use a sales law conversation intelligence, but you know, Gong is great for this as well. Just the ability to right. go back. You, know, you don't necessarily have to be in the call, but just go back and listen to, to the meat of five or six calls and you'll start to find this critical path. Uh, you'll see that, that there are a lot of similarities between them and then it's just simply merging those down into what you think the idealized flow is. We call it Harvard tour. You know, no meeting ever goes like that, but it is at least like if someone were to not ask any questions and they were a perfect fit and just we were just cruising, this is what it would look And so, uh, you know, we, we want them all to at least have a walkabout amount of shit on that because that's that's really important to build the trust so our, our founder doesn't feel like he's got to go in and sort of play hero ball uh, on every deal. It reminds me, so remember back in the early days at SalesLoft, we, Kyle, our CEO, was trying to uh, enable the frontline sellers to be able to tell the same story that he and, and of, of our mission and what we were trying to accomplish and the way that he told it. Uh, Kyle was very gifted at, at, uh, at being able to start. And he would go, I think once or twice a week, he would just record himself, you know, on like selfie camera or whatever. And he would tell a story. It was like a two or three minute clip. He'd put it into a Google Drive and then it would be shared with everybody. And so right. people could start, they were very digestible and it was really easy to do, but they were very compelling stories. And so that was at scale. That was a way for us to enable those sellers. Is there anything else um, that you implemented on this on the the rep side, maybe for the SDRs or for the AEs, in order to, to help them with that? So we brought it more down to text. And so uh, you know, for us, it's getting those stories and moving them into text. We hired a couple of uh, of sales loft alum 
uh, Brett Lang and Rachel Chaw. And one of the things that Brett did in week one, and remember, in the early stages, what you're going to have in the future is going to be awesome. What you have right now, nothing. And so it's like, all right, he's like, well, what are the stories? I'm like, well, go into the CI and listen to the stories. And then you write those down. I'm going to work on the disco questions. And we were basically tag teaming it. But it was the idea of getting those stories out so that we could have, like, you know, just anecdotes that get used pretty regularly. And so it, it was literally just going in and, and you know, when we talk about some of these metrics and things like that, you may say, boy, where do I even start? You know, we're, we're Spartan. We're just, you know, just a few of us. Uh, you know, the best time to grow a tree is 20 years ago and second best time is now. Like, look for opportunities to start. Make the reps do some of it, particularly these new reps. Like, make them go and figure out what it is that's important to the customer by listening to how you, the founder, have pitched the product. Like, make them, put them in the, get leverage from them. Put them in the critical path for that. So, I, I think that's a really important. Yeah, I think getting those stories down is so critical. But then I think the second part of that is the triggers. Because oftentimes, they don't know how to apply them. Yeah. Right. It's like, okay, great. I've got this stable of stories, but then what, how am I using it? How am I telling, right? Is it objection handling? So how do you work that? So, so as I said, week five, so we're still continuing to do that, but I, that's a really big one. Just looking for common objections and finding the, the handle to those and thinking about sort of where the setup story is. Really the stories that we've been capturing are ones that we, that our founder tells frequently on demos. A lot of times the setup, I find in the early days, it's the setup for why the company exists. And so us getting crisp on that and sort of our foundation story is really important. Years ago, so 2008, whenever I was at Pardot, uh, we were going to work with an outsourced lead gen company. They gave us this list of all the things they needed to know to be able to completely represent our brand. And one was, what's your origin story? And that's such a powerful story. And if everybody in the business is not able to go in and tell some permutation, whether it be long or short, uh, you know, that's a myth. Uh, that's something that should be should be codified and should be something that your reps can say, well, here was the problem that we set out to solve. Uh, and those are usually words that you're pointing directly out of the founder's mouth, right out of their transcripts, right out of their call. You got to have your why. That's right. That's right. And, you know, and try to tell you, we actually watched uh, Simon Sinek start with the why. You know, this is from 2005, if I recall correctly, 63 million views, but it's like, it is what you do can be easily replicated. Why you do it is something that is different. And so that's an exercise we're actually uh, currently on, Sean. I love that you, that you mentioned that. You know, what's our bigger why? Because our, our technology can be fast followed, but our, our spirit and ethos is something that can help us stand. Yeah, I think that's really important. You know, we oftentimes we throw these slides together and say, you know, don't jump on a call without your supporting slides. But then we don't go the next step and say, how do you actually talk to these, right? We, we and that is what's behind the slide, the story, the eth I love the ethos concept of the why of the founder, especially in these early stage companies. That's right. Like you're so close to it. Like you're 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 sitting next to the founder. You need to be able to pull that enthusiasm and that passion and that evangelism out from them and use it on those calls because you're a nobody, right? This this is a right. this is a new company. If you might be going up against it might be a David and Goliath story in every sales cycle. So you have to bring that and that's gonna be your differentiator. You're exactly right. And for the founders out there, so it, it's sales law. Uh, suddenly, the mighty sales force got into our space with a really lively product. They got into the space. What was the very first thing I did? Go and read the opening chapter of David and Goliath by Malcolm Gladwell. And what you find is that size has its own unique issues that are associated with it. Goliath, Goliath was large because they believe he had acromegaly, which causes 
uh, pressure on the optic nerve. So he couldn't see the the thing that was ultimately going to be the end of it. He couldn't pick it up from a distance. And so anytime you feel like you're going up against a juggernaut, go read that first chapter. And it's all about, about that size is great sometimes, not great other. And so it, it can give you some inspiration uh, for those sort of sleepless nights. So going back to founders and them feeling confident with net, net new hires, especially if they're, they don't have very much sales DNA, how do you, or what, what advice would you give to them about trying to start meeting data and holding reps account, even though they may not always know what good looks like and making sure that they are at least doing the right things. Yeah, the, it's a, it's a great question, but, you know, oftentimes really, uh, the opportunity may take weeks or months for years in some cases, depending on the size that you're selling. And one of the things that I think founders need to get really crisp on is how to measure success free contract. What are the things that they expect them to do? And just be really, be really specific, be, be really intentional about making sure they do. And then more of those deals will happen. And so, uh, you know, the things that I think about, particularly with enterprise sales reps, look at ops that are moving stages. Are we, you know, all right, great. We got some disco meetings. Are they moving stage? Cause it may be six more months before we're able to close. We may have, we may be in legal contracting hell. We may be in security purgatory, but are we seeing movement? Are we seeing deal velocity? Are we seeing ops being opened? Are we seeing ops being progressed? Are we seeing uh, buying teams expand so that we're continuing to build out? Are we single or multi-threaded? You know, it's like, those are the sorts of things to look at. Uh, and so I, I think a lot about op creation just because we start there. But for for a non-mid-market, for a true enterprise whale hunting initiative, it's not about velocity of opportunities they set up. There's a lot of moving parts of getting the right people under the tent and getting them bought in. And so I, I think depending on the segment that you serve, there's going to be different metrics, but just have some metrics. And a lot of times you know what they are in your butt. I can tell you our uh, our CEO, he literally he's like, I was driving the other day and he's like, I just started calling people who I knew in the past just to be able to to generate demand, which is great. You know, it's like, uh, he's out there and, and he's, he's beating the bushes for us. That isn't necessarily something that maybe we would be able to do at that same scale, but you know, it, it, it's all about, it's all about continuing to get out there and, and get active. So he's helping us with that. Uh, but we can still look for, for advancement. We can look for close rates, the Q rates, win rates, which I know is a, is a lagging indicator as well, but just like, are things going better or worse than they were a quarter ago? Because that can be a pretty significant uh, check engine light for you. Yeah, I'm really loving op creation as a core metric. But I'm thinking, even with a lot of the founders, and, and you know, Sean knows where I'm going with this because we're dealing with it on the daily, defining an opportunity. Right. Really setting the baseline, right? And that's a lens that a founder oftentimes doesn't have, especially as the sales evangelist role that they've been in. Like you said, they can do things that a seller can't do. You have to distill that down into this is an opportunity. This is why it's an opportunity. And these are the stages and the exit and exit and entry criteria that are required to even move that so you can measure it. And I think that's even a big speed bump in those early stages. Have you run through that at all? We have. And I will tell you that, so, you know, I'm, I'm still playing the new guy card. I think I have one more week. I think week six is when the new guy card officially gets in my Adam Blitzen used to always say at Pardot that a week is like a month, a month is like a quarter, and a quarter is like a year. Uh, so when you're when you're uh, thinking about those things, so entry and exit stages, I look at being something that's really important, but that's probably not going to be the hill you're going to die on. Uh, being able to be really defined. 
you know, you can look at simple things like Bant and Anum, uh, you know, uh, Bant, but Budget Authority Need Timeline. And, and a lot of times, quite honestly, the idea of the need, that's going to be a little squishy because if you're selling something that is truly revolutionary, they don't know that they can't live another day with a lot of education. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And so the Anum model replaces uh, replaces budget with month because a true champion can steal budget. So, yeah, we didn't know that this existed at the start of the year. Can this person at least get access to money? They're in marketing and maybe they run one less program and that funds your your buy. And so I think just even simple, I, I think going simple early on as you think about opportunity qualification is probably the best thing. Yeah, when you get more, more mature and more sophisticated, and really this is when you're forecasting deals, you got to have entry and exit stages. You're probably wanting to use something like a medic or med pick uh, to be able to make sure that, you know, you, you cannot move from stage four to five without these three fields being detailed. You can't get the negotiation without the paper process being identified. And you can't go from one to two without a metric that you think you can impact. And so those things happen. I don't think though that they, they're not, they're not, I have a list that is as long as your arm. It's not bubbling up toward the top of the list yet, but I agree with the importance of it. Buddy of mine who was in Salesforce when I got the Salesforce the guy said, All you gotta do to be good at Salesforce is be good at forecasting, and that's really hard. And because there it is, it, you know, it's like all the things that you need to know they're being treated the same way. So as you continue to get big and as you particularly as you start thinking about forecasting, if every rep has got their own way of handling deals, talk to me about luck. What's the old Abraham Lincolnism? Uh big believer in luck, luck uh, harder you work, the luckier you got. But uh it's one of those things where I, I try and think about repeatability. So, you know, could could a could just Joe off the street be able to do this? And, and when you think about metrics, they shouldn't be metrics that only, you know, if you've got like an 80% conversion from conversation opportunity, like your best seller may be able to do that. Golden tongued, you know, sell ice to an Eskimo. Most people can. Uh, and so when I think about it, it's if you set appropriate expectation, then, and if everyone runs that play, then everyone's going to have a similar amount of success. Mark Roberge talked about this in the sales acceleration formula. It's like it, if you hire the same way, you onboard the same way, you hold them accountable the same way, you should expect very similar result sets uh, that should come out of that. Then the question is, who's, who's not running? So I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I have a totally different view on PIP than probably anybody else you've ever interviewed. And for, for founders, I'd challenge you all to, to consider this. And I shared this with an early stage founder. He called me an idiot and I'm totally fine with that. So what I'm about to say may be the spiciest of hot takes, but if it's not to work someone out, it's to work someone back in. If you think about it, you spent months interviewing, you then put them on ramp when they did next to nothing. And then you finally get them out. And at this point you realize that they're not doing the job you want to do. So the knee jerk reaction to fire them then empties that seat. So there's no quota that can be born from that seat. Then you have to go interview again. Then you've got to wait for them to put in their two weeks. Then you've got to get them on staff. Then you've got a 90-day ramp period. And that seat can bear maybe 30% revenue through the span of a year if you cycle through a rep twice yeah. uh, with two false starts. And so our thought process has always been that that performance improvement is a way that is, it's not setting outrageous expectations, just setting the expectations that everyone has. And now HR is going to help make sure that you're doing it, right? So that that's an important piece. But we we had a young man years and years ago. His name was Justin. I won't say his last name in case he's a big listener to the podcast, but it, you don't know who he is. So Justin got put on pit. And during the process, Justin landed the plane on a deal. It was one that he'd been working for a long time. And by some miracle, this deal closed. But remember, 
I'm just looking for my regular expectations. That has to do with emails, calls, conversation, meetings scheduled, opportunities generated. Like I'm still just kind of looking at my normal stuff. So he lands the plane on the revenue and kicks his feet up on the deck. He doesn't do anything. He's behaving exactly like it was when he got put on bid to begin with. And so we kept reminding, hey, remember, you know, from a bid perspective, this is not a revenue only thing. This is a this is a do what you're supposed to do on a daily basis. We're just asking you to do the things that everyone else around here does. Uh, and so Pip came and went and he booked the revenue and he had not done the work. We fired him. And the message that we gave to him was this is not repeatable. Uh, and so if he was not learning to do the things necessary, he was one quarter away from me right back where we were. And so we felt like he got lucky with the deal. And, and he may say that it was all skill. What I can say is he wasn't on tip because he was the most skilled seller to then have by a long time, right? Uh, and so we just, we didn't feel like he was going to be able to, to build the foundational stuff to keep him in good. And so we let him go that. And so that, that's an important idea is that, that I, I think of Pip to keep them, but I also think of Pip, of Pip as reinforcing the habits that you're going to need to be able to remain and be productive for a long term in the future. So love versus, versus hard work. We'll take the hard work every time. Yeah, that's a good take. I mean, you but to your point, it's so hard to get good people in the seat. And if you've already put in all that time, money, and effort, why do you want to rush to get them out? When and then to your other point on Pip, I see too many Pips where you introduce something new. That's right. Right. That's a terrible idea. It's, it's, it's up against your standard expectation. I like how you framed it around. This this is the expectation. We need to see you driving toward that expectation. And back to the idea of something new, the reason that something new is being introduced in PIP, and I'll, I'll pull back to something I said earlier, because the manager wasn't paying attention. Right. right. So suddenly, suddenly they're like, oh my God, like they're, it's not working, and, and now I need them to do this other thing that I just realized because I just started listening to calls or just started looking at Salesforce or whatever. And so, yeah, to your point, the, the initial expectation is generally because the, the manager has not been an accountability buddy with the person the entire time they're showing up late they haven't paid attention and now all hands on them cure set up for failure that's right that's exactly right yeah and derek so you've i mean you've you've spent most of your sales career on earlier stage tech companies yeah um and had and had quite a few um successful exits under your belt when you come in there how important is it for the ceo to prioritize sales and the c-suite in general if there is a c-suite at that point uh and what's your advice for going and, and how to coach them in order to prioritize sales. So something that, that I would say was super interesting, uh, and and I I mentioned that I, I had a, a stint that was a short stint, and it wasn't that the company was bad, it wasn't that I was was suddenly not what was advertised, it was a fit issue. But one of the things was they had a culture that was all about engineering and engineering, building beautiful product, and beautiful product just sells itself. They had been at Google, and their theory was, Google didn't have salespeople, and you could pull up LinkedIn and show there'd be thousands of Google app salespeople, Google Cloud salespeople. You could do all that. It didn't, it didn't change their mind at all. So what I would tell you is, is if the founders don't value sales, that is an uphill climb. And and you know, I will tell you that I, when I went to that company, uh, I was running from something. I was running from Salesforce. I was ready to get out of it. And you know what the truth of the matter was? Salesforce was was great. I just sort of felt like, you know, I just needed to to go somewhere else. And so because I ran from something, I ran by some yellow and I mean red waving the flags at me. He's like, well, I thought I remember having lunch with the founder and he said, I think I have the team bottle on the idea of having sales. And what I heard was he will sell. And that's not at all what he said. 
right? And so, uh, so when you consider that, they didn't have a sales first culture, and because they didn't have a sales first culture, I was a bad fit. Sellers were not necessarily a great fit at that point in that company, and so if 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 execs don't embrace sales, I don't want to say run not walk, but it's it's really hard to get them to change the perspective on that. It just and I get it. If you're a technical founder, yeah, salespeople they are the waiters of the software world. This is an important thing for everyone who's tech. I'm a non-technical. I have a communications degree, and I'm doing that now for free. What a dummy I am, right? Um, but you know, but but when you think about it, uh, sales are the waiters of the of the technical world. They are not crazy technical. They don't make a ton, but the tips are great if they do a good job. And so finding finding an equilibrium where those folks are not considered to be second class citizens, but really embraced as a part of, of the of the business, even if, you know, they're they're kind of the higher help. You hate to say that, but it, even if I do think you need to embrace sales. And for for companies who who like it but maybe don't necessarily love it, I think there's the opportunity to impress upon them weekly metrics. And that's something, Sean, you know, during the the old days at uh at sales law, uh, we would do a weekly ops check it every single week, right? And it's like Here's what we did, and I remembered. So at Sales Law, and for any of those of you watching and you're thinking about about buying Sales Law, historically we did 13 percent of our revenue in the last three days of every. You think about that? That is backloading so so much. But you know, it's like they did that because of the fact that they were salespeople and they, uh, you know, they they wanted to to go out and and they wanted to treat sort of salespeople the same way. But what I said was in those meetings, three weeks an idiot, one week a genius, and probably neither is true. Right. It, it wasn't that three weeks we, you know, missing our number, missing our number, missing our number, spiking in way exceeding it. That just was the rhythm of our business. But being able to be accountable to metrics, particularly when they don't look good, I think that's maybe one of the most important things. Uh, because most sellers are going to find their months and quarters backloaded. I just think that's just the way that sales is. I mean, how many of you out there have run programs to try and get deals to close earlier? Extra money. They still don't close then. Uh, it's working. Um, you know, and, and so so go in at these meetings, say, here's what we did. And you know what? We we wanted revenue this week. We didn't get it. We got yeah. 51 other weeks, but this maybe wasn't the week. So I think owning it uh, and really being transparent about what you're measuring and how you're measuring and how the team's performing against it. I think that that can help uh, gain credibility with the C-suite whenever they're, eh, you know, like lukewarm on sales. Like that's a good way to be able to to gain their, their at least respect. Can't we just blame Salesforce for that? Teaching everybody how to buy at the end. Like, well, yeah, it is crazy. It is great. Yeah. And, and it's like, I think sellers have Stockholm syndrome. And so they're just like, do this to them because they got someone edit to me. Uh, but it works, you know, you know, you're, you're liable to get a better discount or terms or whatever. I, I, I don't think I'm letting the, the company dirty laundry out. I think this is everybody who sells stuff deals with this. And so it's like, you know, sellers are tracking. We'd sell for training them to behave this way. It's yeah, one of the concepts I like to do is, you know, you talked about your fit or lack of fit within that one organization. I do think there's a self-awareness thing. We, you know, especially in tech, we talk about product market fit. We t- we don't talk about what I, I call seller market shit, right? Like, there, you need to have some self-awareness in terms of where you're going to win, right? And I know that's hard. Like you said, if you're running from something or if you got laid off or you're in a tough situation, it, it can be really difficult. But it is something that needs to be evaluated hard, like. I think I'm fucking great at sales, but you know what? I'm not going to win everywhere. And I, I know it's right, right? Like there's certain environments where I know I'm not going to win. Heavy engineering led sale, I'm probably going to win. Like I'm just, I'm not, my mind is not wired that way. So 
Like, I just think there's a lot of reflection and self-awareness that on the seller side needs to go taken into account. Some guidance that I give sellers, and I would challenge everyone with an earshot of this to, to think about is get really crisp on what you don't want to do. Because if you can get crisp on what you don't want to do, like, I don't want to sell to engineering. I, I, I don't want to be on the road three weeks a month. You know, I, 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 I don't want to do smaller deals. Like, whatever it is, get crisp on that because that helps you the lens through which you can evaluate every opportunity proof and see if this is going to be a place of fulfilling. Sure, they're offering you, and of course, I don't know if you know anybody, every recruiter ever. I don't know if you know anyone like to make $700,000 this year. Yeah, right. But like, like, I don't know if I'm a fit for them or them for me. And yeah, that lid is to be able to help you help you qualify and more importantly, qualify. Yeah, I mean, I go in with the assumption that if you're in the right situation and then that's right, like, the, the rest of it doesn't really matter. So I, 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 this has been awesome, Derek. I've enjoyed speaking with you. Big takeaways for me, obviously keep the metrics simple, right? Don't try, if you're measuring everything, you're measuring nothing. I think that's great. I'm personally the cert thing, putting some pressure on the founder to define what good looks like and be able to distill that down for a seller. I think it's fantastic. Um, and then just the whole idea of Sticking to your guns with those metrics, the PIP isn't an idea to, to bring something new. We're trying to help people along and stick to those expectations you set. Those are big takeaways for me. Sean, anything else you want to upgrade? I uh, know it's just a pleasure. Always always spending some time with you, Derek. Um, love your insight. Oh, we go on for hours. Um, if people want to follow you or get some more information on, on how to stay in touch with you, uh, what's the best way to do that? Sure. So Derek at adpipe.com. So D-E-R-E-K. My parents told me one time they didn't put two R's or an I-C-K because they wanted to keep my name simple. Apparently, I wasn't going to Harvard. You know what I mean? I, they weren't planning on me to be an astronaut, more like a garbage man. So, but whatever, just D-E-R-E-K at adpipe.com. Uh, or you can follow me on LinkedIn, uh, just at Derek Grant. Uh, and I certainly would love to have the opportunity to connect with each and every one of you. Give us the ad uh elevator. Yeah, please. It's five here. Like, let's, let's give you some promo. All right. All right. I love it. So, ad, ad pipe. So, uh, so uh, ad pipe is a content activation platform that is designed to help marketers to discover, create, and share content. And we focus primarily on motion content. The The problem that most B2B marketers uh, encounter is they spend 50 grand on a two-minute video. A two-minute video goes up on YouTube. It is, it's, and then you look at the analytics and boy, is that depressing. You know, 100 views, you spent 50 grand, like we're, suddenly you're doing the, the math on per view, and like, wow, that's not great. But what we know is that that video, and also video that maybe even didn't make the the main event, like the B-roll footage, it's got some goodness in it. And so the ability to use AI to go and look through all of your video library and search for a particular thing, an example would be uh, maybe you want to run some sort of a, a end of summer sale for Jeep, and you can type in, you know, Labor Day Jeep sale, uh, you know, Moab edition, and AI will find those, it will then slice you into exactly where you are. And allows you to take those on those pieces of content, adjust them for the the endpoint. You know whether it be a square, whether it be landscape, whether it be uh, more the vertical look, or the appropriate social networks to get them out there and to be able to drive eyeballs and hopefully revenue uh, for your business. And so it's uh, it's one of those things that our pricing is the price of one video. Uh, I always think back to just the price of a cup of coffee a day. Like if you're going to make the we need to send the children. Yeah, for one dollar. That's right. It's like I, we need Sarah McLaughlin playing in the background. We see a message. Yeah, and the y'all, the age. No, it's not good. Uh, not with my voice. 
But with that said, you know, it's like, it's like you know, you, you spend this money, you get poor analytics. Like, like, you know, rather than just go out and make another anthem, let, let's just take what you have and take the good you already have and be able to create breadcrumbs back to that and be able to create breadcrumbs back to your, your website, to your landing page, to your parts catalog, whatever it is that you're making to be able to extend the life of those things. We know that motion outperforms still 12 to 1. If you can just use the eye test, you're doom scrolling. What catches your eye? The yeah. time. But for the most part, anything that's got motion in it, and that's why all social media is this now, that is something that's going to have, is going to catch more eyeballs. And so that's really the space that we're playing. I love it. Selling marketing, marketing to marketers. You're speaking my language. That's right. And so you were talking about lead in V. I was selling uh, marketing automation to marketers. And so well, it's nice to get back to marketing. One of the things that I think is most interesting, uh, when you, one of my goals for every seller at sales off was to get a job off. Because game recognizes game. And, and like if, if they go a pitch or a personalization or approach or whatever, uh, I love that. It's a little different selling to marketers because this isn't like impressing them with your game. You know, if anything, they're maybe a little bit more suspicious of, of the, the celtics because a little more suspicious of the dogs. That's right. It's a, so on some level, we're not trying to over impress them with our sales chops on some level. We're trying to, to let them know that we're, you know, part of the revenue from. I don't know if you guys have read Jolt Effect. No. Oh my God. Uh, chapter three, it is the return of the Jedi of the challenger series, challenger sale, challenger custom. Yeah. Uh, incredible. But one of the things they're talking about, is like, you know, the, the traditional selling techniques are not working right now and they're not working because people are indecisive. They're not unaware of this, how the suckiness of the status quo. And so like, it's, it's almost like a softer peddling sort of thing. And I, I think marketers are really liking that, that we're not trying to hard close them. We're not like, oh, your current process sucks. You're losing a million dollars a day or whatever the case may be. Uh, we're going in with things to be able to reduce the perceived risk that one of the key tenets of the book is it's not a fear of missing out. It's a fear of messing up. And so how can we help turn down the risk in all of those? And so, uh, you know, for, for salespeople, it may be continue with the, the heavy handed sales approach. I think we're finding that with marketers that it, it's more about letting them know that they're going to look like a rock star and uh, you know, and we've got all these controls to make sure that is true and, and really reducing the risk for them. So we're, we're pretty excited, uh, about this new way of selling that I think really resonates right now at this time in our economy. Yeah, I agree. Be a consultant, be there for them. Right. Right. Yeah. I think you're always going to win that way. If you, if you care about them and their business, you're going to do a lot better than any hard sales tactic that may have been taught right. 15, 20, 30 years ago. Well, right. Derek, thank you for joining the show. If you like Derek, you like us, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Leave us a review. That'll help spread the word. We appreciate it. Until next time, thanks for joining the Sheet Code.